Well, hey, good morning. How are we doing? Take your Bibles and turn to the book of John. Uh, we're going to be in the fourth and fifth chapters of the book of John. Um, if you need a Bible, there's ushers coming down the row. Just raise your hand. I'd love to get a copy of God's Word in front of you. If you don't have a copy of your own, please keep that as a gift from us. How many times do you think I've just said what I just said in 12 years? Week after week, we say, hey, open your Bibles and turn to, I mentioned that the ushers are coming down the aisle, and see what happens is it becomes habit, it becomes a pattern. And and one of the things, if there's no other takeaway from this morning, I don't want you to miss the uniqueness of what we do when we gather. We, We open God's word, and some will argue that, well, all religions are the same, That's nonsense, because if if we're here as followers of Jesus, if we're studying the gospel, and I say, open God's word to John 4, please understand, we're doing something different than is happening in other houses of worship. We're studying not a system, but a savior. We're looking at a man. We're not looking at a lifestyle or a a philosophy of how we're going to live. Religions will tell you that if you live a certain way, if you do certain things, if you keep certain rules, you will become worthy of God. You will become acceptable in his sight. But if you're a Muslim, you don't go to church and study Muhammad. If you're a Mormon, you don't go to study Joseph Smith. If you're a Buddhist or you're a Hindu, you're trying to figure out how to align your philosophy of life with the universe to live more in harmony or in tune. Christianity is different. We open God's word. We go to the book of John, which is four narratives about the life of Jesus. And what the Bible is arguing is he isn't a prophet. He's God. He's fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. They argue that Jesus is our savior based off historical fact. The New Testament writers go, look at the Old Testament. Look at the prophecies. He's the Messiah. He fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophets. He's not Mohammed. He's not a middle-aged 40-year-old that wandered into the wilderness, went into a cave, met with Gabriel, and came out with a book and said, trust me, this is different. Thousands of years, dozens of authors, hundreds of prophecies, and they're saying, study the life of Jesus. He's exactly who the Old Testament pointed to. And then after he dies and rises from the dead, they point to an empty tomb. And the New Testament authors, they go like this, they say, Hey, talk to the witnesses. Paul stands before Roman authorities and he says, hey, this didn't happen in a corner. You're fully aware of what took place. They argue for the historical fact of a savior. And when we open scriptures, we're not studying a system. We're looking at a life. That's unique. And then the second thing that's really unique when we come together and I say, take your Bibles and turn to John 4, we can trust the Bible. And the reason that I mention that is in today's passage, there's a, there's a verse that has created a lot of controversy. In John 5, 2, we'll get there in a little bit, but I'll read it for you now. It says this, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool. In Aramaic, it's called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades. And for hundreds of years, critics pointed to this verse and say, see, this is why you can't trust the Bible. Because the area between the Sheep's Gate in Jerusalem and the temple, it's just not that big. The Sheep's Gate's on the north side of the city. It's very, very close to the temple. And nobody could find the pool of Bethsaida that is referenced in this text. To make it worse, John describes this pool as having five colonnades or five porches surrounding it. And they're like, hey, 
proof positive that this guy didn't write at the time of Jesus because in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, there were no octagonal buildings. He didn't understand the architecture of the day. This was written by somebody else years after to make a claim. Well, it's interesting, in the middle 1800s, they found the pool. Archaeologists discovered the pool, and as they were digging and they found this pool, it, it solved the problem. They, they now knew that the pool of Bethsaida was there, but it was rectangular. So the critics continued. They say, see, still wrong. Still didn't have it right. It's only got four sides. And then in 1964, they, they looked under a church called St. Anne's. It was built in the 5th century, um, a, a Byzantine church. And they found the other half of the pool of Bethsaida. It was actually two rectangles at different levels. And it was separated by kind of a rocky cliff. And I think they've got the picture there for you to see. It has a north wall, a south wall, an east wall, a west colonnade, and a center colonnade. Five colonnades. Exactly how John wrote it. How did he know? Well, because he was there. He saw it. And though most believe it was destroyed in 70 AD, John could reference something and he was, uh, what used to be a passage that critics pointed to is now one of those passages you can look at and say, see, the Bible is exactly what it says. And if it's, you don't know it and if you've got some doubts and you just don't know it well enough yet. So we study a savior, not a system. The Bible can be trusted. And then again, I want to just remind you, I did the introduction to John maybe six weeks ago. And I referenced when I said that a verse in John 20, 31, John gives the reason why he writes his gospel. He says, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he's writing to convince you that Jesus is the son of God, but he's not just writing to win the argument. He says, I'm writing not just to convince you, but to change you that you may have life in his name. And he goes on to explain at the end of his gospel that there's thousands of stories. The world could not contain all the stories that I could include in a gospel or a, or a historical account of what Jesus did. But he chose his narratives very purposefully. He's writing with intent. And so far, we've looked at two narratives. We've looked at the story of Nicodemus, and we've looked at the story of the Samaritan woman. And it's really interesting. Can you put that map up there? So this is just kind of an overview of Israel. And if you were following the progression of the stories from Matthew 2, what happens, or I mean from John 2, in John 2, we see Jesus turn the water to wine up in Galilee, up in Cana. And then the next story is he's cleansing the temple. He's at the southern end of this map in Jerusalem. And then he talks to this man named Nicodemus. And then he goes to the middle of the country to Samaria and has a conversation with a Samaritan woman. Today we're going to look at two more conversations. The first one is back up where he turned water into wine in Galilee in Cana. And then right at the beginning of chapter 5 he says, after this, and he's all the way back in Jerusalem. He's all over the country in the first five. And John's not trying to write a chronological study of what Jesus did. He's stringing together narratives for a purpose. And in the first two narratives, I won't reteach them, but what we've looked at so far, the first encounter is with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He is a religious man. If you're keeping notes this morning, he's going to be on the left side of your chart, okay? And I've got in the two blanks, I've got two words. I've got religious and Pharisee. Can I have you add one more word? 
And I know there's not a blank for it. This is going to mess some of you up. You, you blankaholics, okay? But, but there's one more, okay? Um, respected. He's a leader in the community. He is a teacher, possibly the teacher in Israel. And he comes to Jesus and he has some questions for Jesus. How is the, the Judaism that we've been teaching, the Torah and the law, how is that going to interact and relate with you? How can we kind of blend what you're doing with what we're doing? You've just cleansed the temple. How can we make peace? And Jesus looks at a religious, respected man and he says, start over. You've got to be born again. The next encounter in John 4, we've studied it the last two weeks. Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman. There could not be a more polar opposite to Nicodemus than the woman at the well in Samaria. He's a man, she's a woman. He's respected, she's an outcast. He's religious, she's worldly. And yet Jesus engages in a conversation with this woman. He doesn't leave, he doesn't ignore her, he doesn't treat her as an outcast. And as he begins to have that conversation, he's not backing away from difficult topics. He reveals that he knows her whole story, knows her past, knows about her five past husbands, the man that she's living with now, and he's still there. He still engages. He doesn't withdraw. He doesn't condemn. And you see very different approaches to Jesus to very different people as he interacts in these two narratives. So today we're going to look at two more individuals, two more encounters of Jesus. The first one starts in John 4, verse 46. And it says this in John 4, 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. So Cana was kind of off the shore. Capernaum is on the shore. He meets an official. If you look at the Greek, that means he was one of the king's men. Based off his title, we can kind of understand that he is rich, he is powerful, he holds a position of high authority in that area of Galilee. The distance, just so you know this, this will become important, the distance between where Jesus is at in Cana and this official is at in Capernaum, it's about 20 miles. So he is in he is in Capernaum. He hears about Jesus. It says in verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So a official, rich, powerful, finds himself with a problem that he can't solve. His son has fallen ill. We don't have any details. We don't know if he's been ill for a long time, whether it's sudden the text, the way it's written, seems to imply that the son had been sick. Then when Jesus came to Galilee, that's when he reached out. So maybe it's a longer illness, but it's progressing. And now you've got a dad that's fearful that his son is going to die. So if you're this official, you have authority, you have connections, you have money. Up until this point, until Jesus gets to Galilee, what, what, what have you done for your son? Do you think you've got the best doctors there? Consulted with the best medical professionals? Do you think that you're giving him the best care? That you think whatever medicines were available in that day, you've already pursued all of your options. I doubt Jesus was the first thought when his son fell ill. 
I would suggest that this man has done everything in his power to help his son to whatever extent that he can. But the reality that he's now facing is his son is dying. He's at the point of death. He's gravely ill. So the man, when he finds out that Jesus is just 20 miles away, he doesn't send his servants. He goes himself. Commentators suggest that because of his position of power and because of his wealth, the odds that he walked the 20 miles to find Jesus, probably remote. He's probably on horseback. So he jumps on a horse, goes to find Jesus. Hey, question. Do you think he was in a hurry or do you think he took his time? Scenic route or direct way? Which way do you think that he went? Oh, yeah, for sure. He's in a hurry because his son's life is at risk. And he goes to find Jesus. So he says this in verse 48. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, it's interesting. Jesus says this to him. He's talking to the official. But when Jesus answers in verse 48, he says, unless you see signs and wonders, that you is plural. So Jesus is, this man comes up. He says, hey, can you heal my son? Jesus says to the man, unless you, to the people that are around and to the man, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official says to him, verse 49, sir, come down before my child dies. Like, I don't want to talk about signs and wonders. I don't want to have a philosophical argument. I'm here because my son is sick. Come with me because if you don't, my son's going to die. Can you sense the desperation in the man's appeal? Money, position, power can buy a lot of things, but it can't buy everything. Here's the best thing about having money, if I'm just going to be honest. Here's the best thing about having money. It solves a lot of problems. Makes life a little easier, doesn't it? If, if, if you have money and your car breaks down, what do you do? See, people said fix it. No, you buy a new car, okay? You just get a new car. If you have money and your lawnmower breaks down, what do you do? No, you get the guy who mows your grass to get a new lawnmower. See, that's how that works. If, if, if your clothes get dirty, you buy new clothes. That's just how it works. The other day, I was in my closet at home. I was finishing getting dressed, getting ready. And Kristen comes in, and she's carrying a pile of my dirty clothes from the uh, bathroom. And she goes, oops, I'm sorry. I was like, what are you saying I'm sorry for? I said, well, I know you believe in the laundry fairy, and now I've crushed your dreams. So because she was carrying my laundry into the washing machine, and I'm like, you think you're pretty funny. She does, and, and, and she is funny. But... Listen, when you're rich, one of the things that it allows you to do is it allows you to address problems. If you make an investment and that investment goes bad, if you have additional money, it doesn't wreck you. It makes life easier. But there's just a lot of things that money can't buy. They can't buy you health. They can't satisfy the deep longings of your soul. And it can't save you. Certain problems that money cannot address. There's warnings related to money. In Matthew 13, 22, it says Jesus is giving a parable, actually his first parable about a sower who sows seed and it falls on four soils. But speaking of money, he says this, there's this one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. 
I like the way it pairs the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Because here's what money can do. When you get hit with the cares of the world, you go to the deceitfulness of riches and you say, I can just solve the problem with my money. I can solve it with my resources. And you begin to believe that you're self-reliant. And when you do that, the text is really, really clear. The word gets choked in your life. And it proves unfruitful. First Timothy 6, Paul gives a warning to those that are wealthy. He says this, For the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Don't let it make you prideful. Learn to set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Get this, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It's not wrong to have money. It's a disaster when your money has you. And in this encounter with Jesus, a wealthy, powerful man finds himself helpless. So he goes to Jesus. He finds Jesus. Verse 50, the man has said, hey, I don't care about the signs and wonders. Just come heal my son. And Jesus responds in verse 50, go, your son will live. The response is interesting. It says, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Verse 51, as he was going down, back down to the sea, to the place where he lived in Capernaum, his servants met him. So he didn't even get all the way there. The servants were on the way to meet him and told him that his son was recovering. Verse 52, so he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said, your son will live. Now, just a couple things that's interesting. As you're going through the gospel accounts, if it gives you the exact hour that something happens, that's usually important. The seventh hour is 1 p.m. These cities are separated. Where he's talking to Jesus and where his son is ill, gravely ill, the man thinks that he's probably dying. They're separated by 20 miles. The man is probably on horseback. He encounters Jesus at 1 p.m. in the afternoon, and Jesus says, your son will be well. If you're the father, if you're the parent, what's your next move? You get home as quick as you can. You get back to your son's side, because if he's not going to live, you want to be there, and you also want to see the proof of what Jesus said. You get back home as quick as you can. Why is Jesus, why is this man, why is this official running into his servants the next day? One in the afternoon, if you're on horseback, that's not a long trip. Even if you've got to walk it, the whole walk's downhill. You can get there before nightfall. But it's the next day. And that's a tell. And I think that time is important. Because what it says is the man had enough faith that he was in no hurry. He trusted what Jesus said. He knew that his son was well. Servants just confirmed it. So Jesus says, your son is healed. The man believes. Maybe he stayed and listened to Jesus' teaching. But there was a confidence because of what Jesus said. The man put his faith there. And the anxiety was gone. And the belief made certain what Jesus had said. It says, and he believed in his whole household. It's interesting. There's speculation. There's a reference in Luke 8, 3 to a man by the name of Chuza, C-H-U-Z-A. It says he was Herod's household manager. And, and, and Chuza's wife, Joanna, actually follows Jesus in his ministry, becomes one of the financial supporters of Jesus' ministry. Some have speculated that this official in John 4 is actually Chuza. Others have said no. In Acts 13, 1, there's this reference to 
a guy by the name of Mannion. He's a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And in that list, those are some of the early pastors in the church in Antioch. And they're saying, no, that's actually a reference to the man whose son was healed back in John 4. We don't know any of those for sure. That's mere speculation. But what we know for sure is this man's faith healed his son, saved him and his entire household. Jesus changed everything and cured the son of a man who had power and money and found himself helpless and weak and in desperate need of a savior. One more person to meet this morning, John 5, turn there. It says this in verse 1, after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Again, he's met with this man in Galilee. So when it says after this, some time has passed. Jesus is in Jerusalem for a feast. John doesn't mention the feast. It could be one of three feasts. It could be Passover or weeks. That would put the timing in the spring. It could be tabernacles. At all three of those feasts, people gather in Jerusalem. They are all harvest feasts, celebrating three different harvests out of the wheat, the barley, and the fruits. So Jesus is back in Jerusalem. Verse 2, we looked at this. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramic called Bethsaida. That word Bethsaida, Beth is home or house of, house of mercy which had five roofed colonnades. On these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Okay, so let's work this backwards, verse 5. He's been there for 38 years. Not a sudden illness. We don't know how old this man was. Maybe he's 38. Maybe he was born this way. Maybe there was an accident that left him crippled. We don't know his age. We don't know the situation that caused his infirmity. But he's lame. He can't walk. Okay, so that's verse 5. Would somebody look at verse 4 for me? It's not there, is it? If you're reading from the ESV, which is what I have, there is no verse 4. Doesn't that kind of strike you as odd? Well, let me explain what's going on. In earlier manuscripts, there was some narrative that Later on, by the time they translated the ESV, they said in the earliest manuscripts of John, that information isn't there. It's more commentary. We're not sure that it should be in the historical accurate text. So verse 3, the end of verse 3 and verse 4 was left out of the ESV. Let me read them to you from the King James Version. In the King James, it says this, one man who was there was an invalid for 38 years, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was, uh, was made well by whatever disease he had. The earliest comment, or some of the early manuscripts contain that, but the earliest manuscripts do not. And what the um, scholars who put together the ESV said, they said, that's commentary. And what's interesting is the reason that some well-meaning scribe probably added that was it explained why there was a multitude of sick and hurting people surrounding this pool. Without that explanation, you don't know why they were there. And what those verses say is they say, that an angel would come down, stir the water, and whoever got into the pool would be healed first. Without that explanation, you really don't know what's going on in the story. Why this multitude is surrounding this pool. Unless John wrote it in the day that the pool existed then you wouldn't need the commentary because you would know all about the pool because it was right next to the temple. Another subtle proof that God's word can be trusted. 
Now, because this is more commentary, the end of verse 3 and 4, we really don't know if an angel came and stirred the waters. We don't know if that actually happened or if that's what the people who gathered around the pool believed happened. Some have speculated that this was just a natural spring. It was like a hot spring, think Old Faithful at Yellowstone, and occasionally the water would bubble and the people would run in believing that they were healed. Others believe, no, it's exactly like that extra narrative says that an angel came down, stirred the waters. You can choose either one because I'm not sure. I know this throughout the rest of the Bible. You really don't see angels used as a um, method or a modem of healing. I tend to think that this is what the people believed. But here's what I know. If God wanted to stir the waters and heal the people, could he have done it? Turn to your neighbor and say he could do that. Oh, yeah, for sure he could do that. So I'm not sure if it was urban legend or if it was actually happening. But it doesn't change the desperation of the scene. And as the creator of the universe comes upon this pool and looks around at the brokenness of the situation, the desperate need of the people waiting for the water to bubble so they could all race to see who could get in first so that they could be the one that could heal. Can you sense the desperation and just awfulness of that scene? Jesus goes to the scene. There's no mention of his disciples there. Maybe they were there and just not mentioned. Maybe Jesus is there alone. But as Jesus overlooks this whole thing, do you think his heart is moved by the brokenness that's caused by sin and man's rebellion and where this is led and the consequences of our choices? What do you think? Does Jesus have the ability in the moment to just say, everybody's healed? Could he have just spoken to the word and healed the entire multitude? For sure he could have. But he engages one man is this verse 6 when Jesus saw him lying there and he knew oh hold on verse 5 I already read that verse 6 when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time he said to him do you want to be healed okay how you feeling about Jesus's question there rubbing you a little bit wrong like seriously You've got a man that's been crippled for 38 years. Every day, somebody probably takes him to this pool, drops him off in the hopes that he can get to the water first if it starts to bubble. He's poor. He's helpless. He could be not any more polar opposite than the official that we studied at the end of John 4. That man had wealth. He had power. This man is helpless. He is powerless. He is poor. And Jesus goes to him and says, you want to be healed? Someday, not at this church, but somewhere I'm going to preach a sermon just on that phrase. We usually cover more scripture than that. That's an incredible phrase. Because Jesus knows something that I've only gotten a glimpse of during counseling. Sometimes people say they want to be healed, but they really don't want to be healed. Because their infirmity has become their identity. And they want restored relationship, but they won't let go of the victim mentality. They want to be restored, but they can't let go of the bitterness. They've identified themselves by their problem, and quite honestly, they'd be lost if they moved on. But Jesus asked this question, which on the surface seems so indifferent, so far removed. He's like, do you want to be healed? Sick man answers him in verse 7. Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. 
Can you sense the frustration? He's like, do I want to be healed? Get me to the water. I got a plan. Yes, I want to be healed. Why don't you sit here? And as soon as the water starts to bubble, throw me in. Because my problem is I can't get to the thing that heals me. And Jesus, I need you to be the one that gets me to the pool. If you could just get me in the water first, I'm going to be healed. And the big idea this morning is this. Jesus isn't a means to the end. He's the end. And sometimes I believe in our desperation. We run the risk of saying, I'm not looking for a savior. I'm looking for a mechanism to the thing that I think will save me. I come to church every Sunday. I read my Bible. I pray before meals. Goodness knows I even attend a small group. Like I'm all in. But the problem is, Jesus isn't solving the things that are creating the lack of joy in my life. Like, still not married. Still can't find that special someone. We've got guys on our staff, I won't name names, but they came to our church initially to pick up girls. That happens, okay? Then you got other guys who are like, or other women who are like, found my spouse now we got to fix that. There's some problems there. Not overly happy. And Lord, I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, but you're not fixing the problems. And if you fix the problems, and, and we begin to view our relationship with Jesus as a means that maybe through serving him, being obedient to him, being a follower of him, that he'll get us to the things that we really think will heal us. It's a danger. So the man says, get me to the water so that I can be healed. Jesus says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Jesus says, I'm not taking you somewhere to be healed. I'm the healer. I, I'm not here to get you to the source of the thing that will satisfy you. As he said to the woman at the well at Samaria, I am the living water. Jesus is not the means, but the end. Now, now the story goes on. I'm going to summarize because I want to go through it quickly. The next thing we read is, now it was the Sabbath. Okay, that's not John telling us what day of the week it is. That's saying, okay, here comes big trouble. And the next thing that happens in the story, the Pharisees approach this man. They said, who said that you could carry your bed on the Sabbath? Now, I'm thinking a guy who hasn't walked for 38 years, he's pretty fired up about being able to walk and carry his bed, right? But here come the religious people, the people on the Nicodemus side of the equation, and they're like, who said you could carry your bed? We've got 39 different categories where we've defined what work is on the Sabbath, and one of them specifically says you can't carry your bed on the Sabbath. Who told you you could do this? And the guy's really quick to respond. He goes, the man who healed me told me to carry my bed deflect. He's in trouble with the Pharisees. It's that guy's fault. They said, who told you you could do this? He goes, I didn't catch his name. He's not there because a crowd had gathered and Jesus had withdrew. And it's interesting, in a few minutes, Jesus is going to run into this man again in the temple. And what he says to the man in the temple is really interesting. He says, see, you are well. I healed you. I did what you asked 
me to do. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Okay, so we know throughout Scripture you can't save yourself, that it's not based off our works, that we become worthy before God. What he's saying is here, we've dealt with the physical problem that you have, but there's a spiritual problem that still remains. You've experienced physical healing, but you haven't experienced spiritual healing. And I think what's interesting is what happens next. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now, I don't know, was that a witness or a weasel? Which was it? It's hard to tell. Commentators debate. Like, was he ratting Jesus out because he was saying, that's the guy who told me to break the Sabbath? Or was that a testimony that Jesus was the great healer? I don't know that we can be definitive on that, but here's what I know. Verse 16, the response to it was the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And in verse 17, Jesus says this, my father is working until now and I am working. Please hear me. Last week, we looked at a passage at the end of Jesus' discussion with the Samaritan woman, and the Samaritan woman goes, well, when the Messiah comes, he'll explain all things. And Jesus goes, that Messiah, that's me. In this passage, he says, my father. He doesn't say our father, and that's significant. Jesus is claiming to be God. See, what the rabbis would teach was you can't work on the Sabbath. The only one that would be allowed to work on the Sabbath would be God. If he chose to work, it's okay to hit for him to work. And Jesus just said, my father is working and so am I. I alone have the authority to work on the Sabbath because I'm God. And they hated him for it. So four encounters. Can you put that illustration on the screen, please? There's four. We've got a rich and powerful man. We've got a religious and respected man. We've got a poor and helpless man. And we've got a worldly Samaritan woman who was also an outcast. I don't think John picked these people at random. I don't think he strung these stories recklessly. I think he's writing with real intention. I look at that drawing. It creates four quadrants. Now, I don't want to stretch your geometry. I almost said geography. That's how bad I am at math. I don't want to stretch your geometry, but a quadrant would be one of the four squares that are on that illustration. Every person that's ever lived can find themselves somewhere. That's a scattergram. Find yourself in the story. So if you were to look at those four quadrants, where are you? Now, I know you're normally just filling blanks with your notes. This is going to be testing for some of you. Take a pen and put an X where you are on that map. Maybe to help you, I'll start with me. I tend to live in the upper left quadrant. I was born into a Christian home, first generation. My parents had become saved after they got married, but I was raised in a Christian home. I was taken to Medina Baptist Church. I think I was born there. I was there every day of my life. Went to Christian schools, went to Christian high schools, went to Christian colleges. Um, And by the way, I'm thankful for all of that. I lived a very privileged existence. It was introduced to Jesus Christ at a young age. I grew up middle class, the youngest of five, but I married into a wealthy family. So if I look at that grid, I think by the story of my life, you would find me in the upper left quadrant. And because I live there, I think Jesus has some very specific things to communicate to me. 
You can't do it all on your own. Don't become self-reliant. Don't become prideful. Just because you have the resources to solve a lot of your own problems, you still need a savior. Don't fall into a system. You're not accepted because you go to church. You're not accepted because you've taken on the role of a pastor. Don't, don't get impressed by your position. Don't get fooled by the deceitfulness of riches. You need a savior. Be careful your systems and your self-reliance are not blinding you to your need for a savior. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you find yourself in the upper right quadrant. And, and you don't come from a Christian tradition, or if you came from a Christian tradition, you've broken from that pretty strong. And, and, and in this quadrant, I'm reminded of the book of Ecclesiastes and Solomon. He was a man that had wealth, power, and he did everything that he could to find pleasure, to find happiness, to, to find joy in everything the world had to offer. He threw himself into his career. He threw himself into folly. He chased after women. He was consumed by sex. Anything the world had to offer, because he had the means to explore all of those things, he did. And at some point, he got to the conclusion, all of this is vanity, man. All of it is chasing after wind. So if you find yourself in that quadrant, I would ask you this question. How's that going for you? Are you finding the things that are satisfying the deeper longings of your soul? By the way, if I were to take this from an individual conversation and I were to look at us as a country, which quadrant are we in? Oh, we're in the upper right. Pursue whatever life throws at you. You have the autonomy to go anywhere and nobody should stop you from doing anything that would make you happy. And as Americans, we're one of the most affluent countries in the history of mankind and currently on the globe. And we chase and we chase, believing the things of this world can satisfy us. And as you look around, are we a happy culture? Jesus pursues. He says, be careful the deceitfulness of riches in the pursuits of this world and all it has to offer you haven't blinded you to your need for a savior. Maybe you're in the lower right quadrant. And quite honestly, you show up here this morning and say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not rich and powerful. I'm not religious. I'm just kind of broken right now. And uh, life's a little overwhelming, and uh, I can't get on top of my troubles and my struggles, and I've got some things in my past that are regrets. There's some things that I've done that I'm not proud of. I'm living through the consequences of those decisions, or maybe there's some things that others have done, and I'm living through the consequences of their choices and their bad decisions. But the truth is, right now, I'm pretty broken, and I feel pretty helpless. And I'm not sure anybody cares, and I'm not sure anybody sees, and I'm feeling like an outcast, and I'm feeling alone, and I'm hurting. Please look at the way that Jesus approached the man who needed healing and the woman who was an outcast by a well. Jesus says, I see you. I know your whole story. I know your whole situation. I know the brokenness. I know the mistakes that you've made in the past. I know your reputation. I know everything about your story. And I'm not going anywhere. I'm still here. And I'm not leaving. I'm here to help. 
and I love you. Be careful that your brokenness and desperation don't blind you to your need for that this, that your need for a savior is your most important pursuit. Or maybe you find yourself in the lower left. You're frustrated. You're like, I, I thought blessing followed obedience. And I've been doing all the right things, but I'm not experiencing the blessing. Hey, Jesus, that was the deal. I go to church, you find me a spouse. We talked about this. I go to church, you fix my husband. This is how this works. You're using Jesus to get the things, believing that by being a good follower, he will lead you to the things that will ultimately satisfy your soul. Be careful that you are not bargaining with God and believing he is a means to a better life without realizing that in the process you become blinded to your need for a savior. So you've got that chart if you're keeping notes. Can you find yourself in one of the quadrants? Can you find yourself on the grid? I look at these four stories and I'm really thankful for the gospel of John for a writer who just explained that wherever you find yourself in life, there's a savior who is engaging you, he is pursuing you, and he is meeting you with the very, very thing that you need to say, and he's willing to have the difficult conversations because he loves you. Listen, we're not studying a system, we're studying a savior. And in these four encounters, Jesus is showing his heart no matter where you find yourself in the spectrum of life and of this world. We serve a great Savior, amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for um, these encounters, real people, real struggles, real need, confronted by a real Savior. Father, don't let us become blind by our circumstances, be it through desperation or indifference, be it because we have abundance or we have need. Don't let our focus become on us alone. Father, we're thankful for how you pursue at every stage of life. We're thankful for the gospel. We're thankful for Jesus. It's in his name we pray.